So the gatekeeper, you know, uh, Tully escapes, and the gatekeeper and the keymaster meet up. Obviously, have sex and kind of a cosmic union that, that kickstarts things. But there was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies, and they talked about something else called movies. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the sequel cast, www.sequelcast.com. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. This is a podcast where we talk about movies in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Uncle Milkshake. This time around, we're starting off a new series of films with talking about the original film in the Ghostbusters franchise titled Ghostbusters. It was directed by Ivan Reitman. came out in 1984, written by Dan Aykroyd and Hilda Ramis. And stars, such stars as Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver. With me is Thrasher. Howdy. And special Dean guest. Dean Yeager. And Dean Yeager. How are you doing, Mr. Yeager? I'm fine. I'm doing better than fine. This is one of my absolute favorite films. And I so totally didn't want to suggest this because I'm... To do good doing Ghostbusters on the sequel cast only because I was worried that it was going to be completely self indulgent. Wow. Then should I take, should I like, I guess come in from the other side and say this is a terrible movie? Oh, don't lie. I don't think ruin it's a our good movie. I have, I have issues with its pacing because it's so episodic, but we can get into that later. Hmm. So I think okay. it... I don't have to play devil's advocate, but I would like to mention what this movie could have been. Oh, yes. Fair enough. Now, Ghostbusters, aside from having Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver, had Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, uh, Ernie Hudson, Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts, and this film, actually, I saw Ghostbusters after seeing Ghostbusters 2. After? Yeah, when I was little, I lived wow. in uh, Argentina for two years, and Ghostbusters 2 was in the theater. And I saw it in the theater and had a Ghostbusters 2 coloring book, but didn't see the original Ghostbusters until um, I moved back to the the States, like in 90 or 92, something like that. Okay, you have to bring up that coloring book in the next episode, because I got a killer joke. Okay. (laughs) Strangely enough, in the coloring book, all you could do was color in Ernie Hudson. No, what? Wow. Never mind. Wow, Wouldn't, Wouldn't that be a failure of your box of crowns? That would. All the colors of the world. There's actually a, a multinational, uh, multinational uh, box that you can get that has all the skin tones, or all the approximate skin tones of the people around the world. So there's so much to talk about. Ghostbusters is such a, a legendary comedy. It's very difficult to figure out where to begin to uh, talk about well, it. Let's talk a little bit about Ramus. I mean, we've talked about him. Uh, talk, uh, we've talked about him in Caddyshack. And how um, he's kind of written for a lot of things, National Lampoon's uh, Animal House. Um, and he directed a Caddyshack. Yes. Oh yes. But it also came from it came from kind of his backstory. Now he had been a caddy when he was a, a teenager. Uh, before he went to college, he had been a Ghostbuster, and he decided to take those experiences <laughs> right out. And, a really interesting look at the people who do that kind of job because I think it's an invaluable, um, it's an invaluable role in society. Well, well you know, Ramis that? is really important, and um, 
Egon is one of my favorite characters. Just a very specific nerdy kind of humor, even for Absolutely. a Ghostbusters movie. But Dan Aykroyd is the one who is really into a paranormal belief in real life. Apparently, I was really yes. into. I, I was really into. I really liked the character because as a kid, I was kind of into that. I was into ghosts and the occult and stuff. Um, and Dan Aykroyd is kind of strange now as well. He was into that, and now he's like more paramilitary and has a compound somewhere in the woods. He produced a UFO uh, documentary and narrated it. I can't remember the title of it. And he has a brand of vodka he helped create that's, you can buy it from liquor stores. It costs $50, and it's served in a uh, bottle shaped like a crystal skull. He also um, hosted a show called Beyond Supernatural or Beyond? It was a, no, it's called a Psy Factor. Psy Factor, yeah. They would have like they would have like three sort of like short segments. Two of them were fake, one was real. But he hosted it. It was weird because like Dan Eckert was the host, but he hosted it like in a character, like in an almost Jack Webb like persona. Hello, I'm Dan Aykroyd. This is Psy Factor. Well and he was also on Dragnet with Tom Hanks. Oh, now yeah, let's not talk about that movie. No. I'll talk about any other layout, yeah. Let's focus on their work and how good they were in Ghostbusters, or how bad they were, depending well, you know, on how to view this film. Like, I could, I can't, like, I gotta wonder, like, what, I mean, who knows, maybe they, they didn't do a pitch, maybe they'd already had a picture deal at this point, they didn't have to pitch this out, but I could just, uh, it's, it's a workplace comedy about parapsychologists. Well, see, but then also, let's talk about the pitch for Ghostbusters. The movie that started is the pitch for Ghostbusters. <laughs> no, because it started off. Ghostbusters started off as the idea of people who do this for a living, but there are lots of franchises of Ghostbusters. Well, yeah, the, like Plumber to its fall. I guess you better clarify what we're what we're talking about. Um, there was a much earlier version of Ghostbusters that didn't get made, which which the dean is now going to enlighten us on. Uh, Harold Ramis had this idea for a a. A paranormal ghost-busting franchise of groups and stuff. And in New York, in a futuristic New York, I don't remember the year. I think it might have actually been 2010, 2015, somewhere around there. Um, but it was supposed to star only two Ghostbusters. Um, I don't know who the other one was, but it was supposed to be uh, Jim Belushi. No, not Jim Belushi. Which Belushi was it? James? John. John Belushi, thank you. Um, the one from Blues Brothers. But when he died, the idea kind of went meh. And they asked John Candy if he wanted to do it with the same um, rundown. And I guess they wanted one skinny, one fat, kind of like Mario and Luigi. but or Laurel and Hardy, I think, would be the, the cogent paradigm. Or the Blues Brothers, even. Mm, true. And I guess the movie... <sighs> They had to... Uh, John Candy wanted too much money, and then it kind of soured for a few years, and then I don't know how he approached Dan Aykroyd or uh, Bill Murray. Do you guys have any information on that? Oh, who knows? I mean, they, they had been exposed to each other on Caddyshack. One thing I know about early casting from listening to a little bit of the commentary on the uh, Ghostbusters DVD is uh, Rick Moranis plays the part of the neighbor... Uh, Lewis Tully, and and he's very nebbish, and he's a normal Rick Moranis sort of part, but that part was going to be given to John Candy originally. Oh, that was going to be John Candy. 
that was going to be John Candy at when, when this was most, much uh, closer to filming. And John Candy wanted to perform the part in a Russian accent. It didn't understand the <laughs> obsession with uh, dogs, you know, like Gozer as the dog creatures in the script. Yeah. And it just didn't work out for whatever reason. But uh, watching Ghostbusters, among other things, makes me realize how much I miss Rick Moranis in movies. He's been retired from acting uh, for a while. Yeah, he plays country music. Yeah, he has a he did a country album called The Agoraphobic Cowboy. And although Rick Moranis, Moranis always did the same kind of part, but he was just so good and so earnest and sincere. I don't know. I mean, well, no, that's not always true. I mean, I do. Uh, you have Little Shop of Horrors. Right. Where he's that kind of nerd. But if you look at his parts on um, SCTV, the sketch show that he was on with John Candy, um, he could play the handsome devil. He, he played a lot of the, the macho types and that. Well, uh, I, loved, I loved it when he played Merv Griffin. Mm. Oh, yes. I remember that sketch. Ah, yes. I'm Merv Griffin. Mm. That was great. Yeah, no, good. That was a good, that was also a good part of my childhood, staying up really late trying to find a channel playing SCTV. I never never seen an episode of SCTV. I know a lot of the cast members, and I know uh, Shout Factory has released a lot of uh, random DVD sets. The series, it's well worth it. I, I hardly enjoy check uh, endorse checking out SCTV. Cool, but uh, back cool. to back to Ghostbusters. Yeah, I mean, it starts off, uh, you have these, I guess, well, you have these four actors, and again, I don't know, I don't know the order that they came in, but you've got Harold Ramis, the guy who wrote it, as one of the Ghostbusters. You Dr. See that, Egon Spengler. Spengler. But then the, the movie opens up with, of course, our favorite, Bill Murray, um, giving a psychic test and hitting <laughs> on a blonde, which just, it epitomizes the character. You already kind of understand so much about Pinkman. He has and this perfect funny. level of smarm as he falsifies results on a on a psychic latency test using Xenor cards to seduce a co-ed. Oh, speaking of which, uh, Uncle Milkshake, I have a series of cards here. Um, okay. Could you tell me which one I'm holding up? I think you're holding up a, uh, a heart. No, there's no hearts. No, it's like it's a star, a square, so you're not psychic. Uh, Zenner cards. Don't you? Don't they teach you anything in school? We didn't go to that kind of school. All I learned you, in school was how to stock up on bagels because the entrees tasted like shit at the cafeteria. Oh my god! Didn't they? Right? <laughs> bagels. Hi, Brown. Yeah, let's. I'm gonna go back to Savannah at some point, just for the hell of it. I'm gonna. I don't know when. Probably in December. I'm gonna come down that way. Travel the East Coast down. I'm heading up in April, I think. Why? Sidewalk Arts Festival. Ah, uh, yeah, makes sense. Which has nothing to do with Ghostbusters, unless, of course, we draw Ghostbusters on the sidewalk. Or there's lots of there's all these. I guess it's weird. There's so much focus on towns like Savannah, New Orleans, uh, uh, Chicago, places like that, and there are all these ghost tours. People still have an obsession with the idea that there are ghosts out there, and whether you believe it or not. Um, the idea that, that you could then get rid of the ghosts that are plaguing you. In this movie, it seems the ghosts are much more uh, horrific than anything you'd ever see in real life, unless, of course, it's a poltergeist, which could well, be know, due to a girl uh, menstruating. Well, you know, that actually 
brings brings up something interesting because like the, the ghosts the ghosts in Ghostbusters don't seem to be the restless souls of dead people. They just seem to be like bundles of psychic energy or spirits or thought forms. Because really, because like when like aside from the aside from like the librarian, the the librarian who haunts the New York Public Library, none of the ghosts really seem to be people. I mean, what kind of person would you have to be to die and come back as Slimer? Uh, again, if they're based on what. I guess it, it could be they're very based on their archetypes. It could be based on uh, your sins. If you're a guy who basically maybe died eating, who actually died because of his gluttony, then you come back as that horrible piece of shit. Oh, you know, that that brings up something interesting. So, so really, uh, Slimer is not so much a ghost in the classical sense. He is a gawky. He is a Japanese hungry ghost, a, a mischievous, gluttonous spirit. Hmm. See, now that's interesting because, again, it's weird because they do bring up the idea of gods and, and possession in this. Well, you, you also mentioned Poltergeist, and Poltergeist came out in 1982. Ghostbusters came out in 84. And although Poltergeist is certainly more um, horrific, it's a kind of interesting example of another sort of ghost movie. Although in Ghostbusters, it's go- a lot of ghost haunting different locations and Poltergeist is confined to the house. Well, I also think another reason that they kind of made these things look horrible is because do you want do you want these guys busting into your house and sucking in your grandmother's soul into a little box and then putting it in a bigger box forever instead of that soul going on to heaven? And well, if- things. Well, that, well, that's assuming that heaven exists in this universe, but it also, you know, so, well, what, what if, what if your grandmother's soul was a real bitch? Okay, true. <laughs> but maybe Nana wasn't, and when her spirit passes through the wall, she smells the cookies she used to make, and then your neighbors complain, and they bust your grandmother's ghost for walking through walls. It, <laughs> it also became a thing that was part of the, the reason that the original screenplay was going to be more about guys who are like plumbers who are, I guess, just doing a job like a beat cop, but kind of policing the spiritual world and the physical world. They don't really do anything in the physical world. They just blast shit. So Um, I think it was the original script was cut down in concept because of uh, budgetary reasons or that it was too out there and needed to be a little bit more... uh, I think it was too out there. Yeah? I think that was one of the reasons and budget. Yeah, I mean, Ghostbusters as it exists is very grounded in reality. The only conceit they make is that ghosts are a very real physical presence and that you can bust them. And that you can have a nuclear, uh, no, no, fusion so reactor. proton accelerator. Proton accelerator on your back. Yeah. Because aren't, wait, now when we talk proton accelerator, are we not even, are we talking CERN? What, how small can they get? Well, apparently small enough to wear on your back. Well, no, I mean, like, in real life. In the 80s. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that, that does bring up a good point. Like, when when the, when the when, uh, when Venkman, Stans, and Spengler get, uh, when their parapsychology department at the university gets shut down and they're thrown I out on the street, and they decide to go into business for themselves and start this paranormal investigation and elimination service, the Ghostbusters... You know, they must have they must have had to take out some loans or get some money from somewhere, but they apparently got enough of a, enough loans to build four man portable particle accelerators 
a a contain a quantum containment field and uh, traps and other high tech ghost busting equipment. And they built that stuff really fast. It makes me wonder: Did Egon have these things half built on the university's dime as kind of a prototype, and maybe they snuck out with them when they got uh, kicked That's out of the university? That makes a lot of sense. That's, That's what I thought so because cool. that seems much smarter. But then they could get sued if if they had used anything they had made there. The college would own the rights to anything that was built with college equipment. Well, we can be thankful the college didn't find out. Mm. Well, as dean, I I will definitely write a report. Um, but yeah, you talk about them being thrown out. They're thrown out because nobody like. Parasite, nobody believes in ghosts. <laughs> nobody believes in ghosts, but like it's the idea that oh, they have to provide proof. And at the time that they're, um, well, I, uh, let me talk about this. When I go into New York, every time I walk by the uh, library, mm. I start whistling that opening music. Mm. <laughs> But no, it's like the other one, the... see one of the lions. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're trying to get proof. They are constantly trying to get proof that ghosts are real and that they have a way to study them. And he has... Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Egon has a... detective oh, PKE meter. PK, no, what does that stand for? Uh, I believe, well, I believe it stands for psychokinetic energy. Mm. And it does look cool. It's got wings that go up and down measuring something. Um, so when they go all the way up, that's bad news. Well, well you know, that's something I love about, about that particular prop in this movie. You get something very visual that, like, lets you know the strength of the supernatural energy in the area that like, doesn't require any forced dramatic close-ups of a dial or a blinking <laughs> light. And the PKE meter is used to wonderful effect in the uh, recent uh, Xbox 360 Ghostbusters video game. Oh, yes. Which we'll talk about in a later episode. Oh, and you know what? The PKE meter also had a uh, had a cameo in uh, John Carpenter's They Live. Huh. Yeah, check it out. It's towards the end of the movie when you see, like, the paramilitary people in the alien base. They, they are equipped with PKE meters. They're using them as, like, communicators. When I was younger, I had a um, a Ghostbusters toy. I think it was based off the cartoon, not the movie. But it wasn't the proton pack, but it was the gun that they use. Is there a name for that? Oh, the uh, you mean the wait, huh? Well, there in the movie there was just the 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 proton pack, which is the big the, the big man portable backpack with the particle accelerator built into it, and the actual like, and then it has cables running to running to this mechanism that actually fires the proton stream. Actually, gun is called... I, I, I don't know if this is what it's really called, but it says here the the gun itself is actually called a wand. It's yeah, it's referred to as a wand. So this story was just the wand then. It didn't have a backpack component to it. No. But um, what you do is you shot it. It didn't shoot something... It didn't shoot like a Nerf ball out, but it projected an image of a ghost on the wall. Oh, I remember that. It was like a magic lantern type thing. And if you, like, pushed a button while it was projecting on the wall, the ghosts would move, or, like, their mouths would open and things like that. Right, and you could flip between two or three different uh, ghost designs, and that was all from the uh, 
cartoon, but I guess. Yeah, I remember I, that. That was I, pretty cool. I had, I had a whole bunch of the action figures. I never had any of the weapons. But, man, I wanted the uh, the capture box. The trap, I wanted, the ghost wanted trap. So bad. Well, you know, I guess, I guess we, we got to say, uh, and this is, you know, b- uh, I guess to a certain extent, to this movie's credit, I mean, Ghostbusters did become a huge media franchise. There have been there have been multiple animated series. There have, there have been multiple video games. There was a sequel. Um, the there have been ripoff movies. Uh, but the thing about the original Ghostbusters, it is unintentionally toyetic. It's full of these amazing pieces of equipment, the proton packs, the wands, the ghost traps, the, the Ecto-1, this really kick-ass old-timey ambulance they turn into their mobile, their rapid response vehicle. Yes. Uh, all these things that like would go on to make some of the most kick-ass toys of the 1980s. However, that didn't happen until later. They, they show up in this film, and there's, there's really no intention of merchandising. Well, They're also just within this film, uh, with the um, dialogue of uh, Egon and what um, Dan Aykroyd is, what, Stance, is that right? Raymond Stans, yeah. Yeah, of uh, Egon and Stance, is that they have such dead scientific dialogue explaining how all these things work and giving it such a detailed scientific description of everything that really makes you believe in the uh, realism of this world. Yeah, well, they do have an amazing sense of like an amazing sense of techno babble. It's like it's almost like techno babble becomes whimsical and, and and wonderful and more realistic. I mean, they talk about proton accelerators. They talk about mesons, and they talk about it very fast without dumbing it down or explaining it to the audience what they mean. Yes. Oh, see, that's what's so great. It's like, like it, what was the collect? It could be a race memory from the collective unconscious. Yes. It's some great lines in this movie that you don't understand, but just sound perfect. And also, it's great because, um, uh, yeah, uh, now I can't. I think I'm sorry. Uh, Peter Venkman, when um, when Dana Barrett comes to see them because of the problems in her apartment, Sigourney um, Weaver, her haunting. Yes, we'll talk a little bit about her, I guess, as we follow the story. One of the best things is like when they're talking about all the things that they could do. And she's like, I don't believe any of this. And and Venkman pipes up, I don't believe any of this either. <laughs> but how about I let you? How about I, I follow you home? We'll do some tests. It's like, it's like well, you he's know, the most flim flam. But the other well, guys grounded science. Well, that, that is kind of interesting because they all sort of have their approach. Like you know, like Ray does seem to have this sort of scientist obsession with the topic of the paranormal, and Egon Spengler has this just this brilliant mind for the physics of the paranormal, of sort of bringing the paranormal into the realm of conventional science. And then you have uh, then you have uh, uh, Bill Murray's character uh, Peter Bankman, who it's really unclear why he's into this, and I kind of I kind of think that Peter Venkman was their grant machine. He was the guy that hustled to oh. good friends of theirs, and he was the guy who hustled to get their parapsychology department the funding it needed. I think that's what he originally brought to the team. I, he may not exactly believe in ghosts. He but just kind of likes degrees. these guys, likes what they're doing. He does have degrees in parapsychology and psychology. And well, probably because they were easy degrees. And he slept with all his female professors. That yes. could be it as well. 
But I mean, I mean, and that's such a wonderful character. The other important thing that he does is he is someone the audience can relate to. Like, if you're watching this movie and don't care about techno babble stuff, the other you know, two are geeks. The other Bank- two are geeks. Bankman is like, oh, this is all bullshit, you know. But and it's almost the same function as a Han Solo in the Star Wars movies. <laughs> yeah, except that Han Solo legitimately was cool and awesome. Peter Bankman just thinks he's cool and awesome. Compared to the geeks, he's cool. Compared to Harold Ramis, he's cool. Yeah, but look at that comparison. <laughs> True. I mean, Walter Peck looks cool next to Lewis Tully. Well, you know what's also weird about this is, like, um, you're less like, oh, the Dana Barrett's uh, quote, you're less like a scientist than a ga- you're more like a game show host. Yes. Yep. And again, this movie, one of the cool things about it, what's written so well Caddyshack's quotable, Ghostbusters is quotable. Oh, Ghostbusters is endlessly quotable. Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. Are you Alice menstruating right now? <laughs> let's let yeah, actually What's let's the line about fungus that um, Egon. Oh has. no, Egon. Egon had a thing like you know I I collect spores, molds, and fungus. Um, my favorite one um, because we're talking about the library. The librarian gets attacked by a ghost. The Ghostbusters are called in. Um, there's all these weird things that are, I guess, clues to there being paranormal activity, and one of them is the slime. Is this terrible petroleum it's jelly plasmic residue? And um, Venkman has to get has to get a sample, and <laughs> he's wiping it. And that whole thing was um, improv by Murray, which is one of the greatest things about Bill Murray. He improved getting it on his hand and wiping on the books and trying to get it off him and off his shoes and just off. Yeah. Ah, and I love when he gives it to, um, yeah, when he gives it to Egon, he's like, Egon, here's your mucus. That's a great time. At least for us geeks. So well, there, there's some cool stuff that goes on in that library. Like, like the book, like the books, like the books behind them, like swapping shelves or when like the card catalogs open and all the cards just start flipping into the air. So you mentioned how Sigourney Weaver goes to see the Ghostbusters because she has problems in her apartment. Yes. What is it that she runs into? Her eggs start cooking themselves in her countertop? Yeah, yeah. She brings up some groceries, and the eggs pop out of the carton and cook themselves on the countertop. And then she hears, like, heavy breathing, and she opens her refrigerator, and her refrigerator doesn't have food in it. It has a vortex, and in this vortex is this weird, like, temple with these demon dogs guarding it and this voice calls out Zool and it just freaks her the hell out she runs away from her apartment funny Uh, story about that sequence on the audio commentary they talk about how when they did test screenings for the movie the special effects weren't finished so when she opened up the fridge it just cut to uh, something that said scene missing (laughs) and that freaked the audiences out so much even with no special effects (laughs) It's like paranormal activity before it's time. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I guess like you can imagine the most horrible Lovecraftian thing like coming out of the refrigerator. Well, again, the image they have in the film is so out of nowhere and, and it's very creepy, and you see it for a very short amount of time. Oh yeah. Well, we talked about how the, the the monsters are a little more monstrous. The librarian that they uh, the librarian ghost that they encounter turns into this horrible creature with, like, claws and a huge face oh, and things. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that scene where, like, they go, they find the librarian ghost, the full torso manifestation, as they call it, 
And it's just this old-timey library just going, shh, shh. And when they keep trying to talk to it, it just explodes into this ghoulish banshee thing that flies at them. They all run away. I have a confession to make. When I first saw that scene, I think I was about four or five years old, it, it scared the hell out of me. And I ran yeah. from the room. Uh, and I did not watch that scene again for because the thing is like I was a huge Ghostbusters fan in the eighties. I loved watching the movies, but I was always I would always leave the room with that scene because it freaked me out so much. That and I don't get the the dogs. I that like when she opened the the refrigerator that used to freak me out. All the creatures in this really weren't meant for kids to see. Yeah, I, that's what I love about about the, the ghosts and spirits in this and, and, and all the special effects in this movie. They're not comedy special effects. They're serious special effects, like you might see in an overblown uh, fantasy movie. But they just happen to be used in this workplace comedy, and I love that. It makes it makes the movie seem that much more real. Yeah, this movie really plays with serious parts and really plays with horror and comedy so well it's 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 so seamless i know you said it's very episodic what did you mean by that okay so what i meant is the movie the plot you you're introduced to the characters very well the plot sort of builds and then as soon as they become ghostbusters there is a lot of montages and separate missions that go on and i feel the uh the core plot of zool and that sort of thing comes in more towards the end, but it's not as strong of a thread throughout the film as maybe it could have been. Well, I don't think that's true because the activity of the ghosts picks up because of, I guess, a doomsday. Uh, Thrasher, do you want to talk about the doomsday implications? Well, yeah, um, this a lot of this comes in late, late in the movie, but it turns out that Dana Barra's apartment building was designed by this uh, architect named Evo Shandor. And it turns out that Evo, Evo Shandor, after World War I, kind of went mad and decided that uh, the human race was just too sick and fucked up to survive. And so he founded this doomsday cult whose goal was to bring about the end of the world. And they worshipped these ancient Babylonian uh, uh, apocalyptic deities, including... Uh, the you know Zool and Gozer being the uh, being like the, the dominant ones, and they did all sorts of rituals and sacrifices. But he designed his buildings. Once he went mad, he designed his buildings in accordance with you know ancient geomantic uh, 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 rituals and sorcery styles. So that in fact, Dana Barrett's apartment complex is a resonator for negative psychic energy. It just absorbs negative psychic energy and channels it so that these apocalyptic gods can manifest in our world and destroy it. And this has just been going on for ages, and now the supernatural energy has reached a kind of critical mass. And that's why as the film progresses, the Ghostbusters have to face increasingly greater numbers and more powerful ghosts. Because this negative psychic energy is sort of attracting and breeding them. It's where one of the things that um, uh, that uh, Stedmore, no, I'm saying Zedemore, Winston Zedemore, Winston Zedemore. The Winston says is like maybe the reason we have been in so many calls is something's coming around the bend. Well, no, it says because the dead have been rising from the graves. Because there's this great scene where 
where Winston Zeddemore, the fourth Ghostbuster, is you know riding back to the Ghostbusters uh, firehouse with stands, and they just sort of start talking about the Bible and Revelations, and they quote some creepy passages. And he's like, well, you know, Ray, maybe the reason we've been so busy is because the dead have been rising from the graves and preparing, you know, implying that the Judgment Day is approaching. And they actually do quote, uh, they do quote the... Um... Yeah, and I looked, and he broke, broke of the seventh seal, and the moon became his blood... And the sky became black as sackcloth. And uh, trying to remember what bi- what what verse is that from, or where is that in the Bible? Revelations. All that stuff is in Revelations. I couldn't remember the name of the Bible. Speaking um, of Winston uh, Zedmore, he's played by Ernie Hudson, and I was just telling uh, the dean before the show began that you and I met Ernie Hudson in an elevator at DragonCon in Atlanta. Well, outside, outside, of elevator, yeah. outside, outside of the elevator. Outside of elevator. Excuse me. Why that? did you guys get him on the podcast? Should have given him a call. <laughs> we should have. He could have done it. Um, I bet he could have. Well, well, let's let's tell this wonderful story. This was in, I believe, it was late 2004. Uncle Milkshake and I had attended uh, Dragon Con, massive science fiction, fantasy, and fandom convention. Uh, we're it's on the ground. Atlanta, it's in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, and yes. it takes over two hotels. Uh, oh, that's nothing. Gen Con's got like seven. Well, this is large for a Southeast convention. Anyway. Well, well, you need two hotels to hold Harlan Ellison's ego. Uh, Yeah. Ba-boom. Well, anyway, so yeah, there we are on the bottom floor. They've got these elevators uh, with some friends. And Ernie Hudson uh, comes up to the elevator because apparently he's, you know, he's staying in that hotel. And, and of course, I'm amazed because, you know, because, wow, you know, Ernie Hudson, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be another year until I saw my second Ghostbuster. This is the first Ghostbuster I've ever seen in person. You've seen but a second? I'll, I'll tell that story later. Okay. Um, I'll do that one next. Uh, the Ghostbuster. So, um, so Ernie Hudson's there waiting for the elevator with the rest of the people. And of course, I think it's awesome that it's Ernie Hudson. And I I don't I I make it a point whenever I meet like a, a childhood hero or or an actor or author I really admire not to act like a total geek and embarrass myself and them. So I decided to play it really, really cool. So, like, I was acting real nonchalant about it. But, you know, everybody's kind of looking at him and finally he's like, Hi, my name's Ernie Hudson. I was in Ghostbusters. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, my first reaction is to go, Hi, you're Ernie Hudson. You're in Ghostbusters. But, um... And then so you know we all shook hands. pretty cool. But what was great is when the elevator's coming down, he starts hitting on a woman, and that's how he hits on the woman. Hi, I'm Ernie Hudson. I was in Ghostbusters, and she was a white blonde woman, right? A white woman with blonde uh, hair. I don't, I Probably don't remember what the woman looks, what the woman looked like. Uh, but I've got to say, can you imagine how much tail you could get as a Ghostbuster? If you went to cons like that, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah like if you right. were to be eating out of your hand, he'd be like. You know, I ain't afraid of no ghost, and you ain't afraid of no penis. Jesus. Oh, <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, it's like the whole thing because it's the mystique. Let's. I want to tell you a little bit no, about no, the, the ladies the love a man in uniform, even if it's a Ghostbusters uniform. So who's the second Ghostbuster you met, Thrasher? Okay, well, I guess met, met's not quite the right word. Um, in... Oh, uh, and, and maybe let's, uh, it, it was. I went to. Uh, I went to New Orleans. I went to the first post Katrina Mardi Gras, and you know had a you know great time. 
So I'm walking down the street with uh, with a friend of mine, Gabe, who we're, we're sharing the hotel, and there's a House of Blues. And we all know, you know, Dan Aykroyd uh, like started the House of Blues franchise. Well, we're walking there, and there's Dan Aykroyd standing in front of the House of Blues next to his car on his cell phone and looking very angry. I, I think, like, a, an act hadn't shown up on time or something, but, of course, like, well, I'm not going to interrupt him, but I'm like, check it out. It's, it's, it's Dr. Raymond Stans. I've, I've, I've now encountered two Ghostbusters. Um, but what was great is that, you know, because, okay, you know, I, I see him, ah, Dan Aykroyd, the actor who play, portrayed Raymond Stans. So as we walk past him, like, all the people behind us, like, it slowly dawns on them who they just walked past, and hung people behind us, dude, that was a Ghostbuster. What are you talking about? That was the Ghostbuster guy. <laughs> they, they, they were all referring to him as the Ghostbuster guy. <laughs> Nobody I knew think the, I think for the actors, these are the movies, these are the roles that I guess everybody's going to remember them for. Yes. You see Hudson, you don't think so much about his role as the warden on Oz. You don't think of too many other movies. Um, you, you think of Ghostbusters. Same thing. Say, except for Bill Murray has been in an, has been in enough other stuff. But really, can you think of a more iconic character that he's played? Got a good point. Groundhog Day or Caddyshack? Yeah, uh, I would call him iconic. Do, do you remember the name of the character from from Groundhog's Day? Phil. Like Ponsatoni Phil? Yeah, ah, fuck. He's just like that. Shit. The Groundhog. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> no, his name, no, his name was Phil. Okay, but right. I thought you just said this. Was... Yeah. Well, I guess. You're not going to come up to him and say, hey, you're Phil from that movie. You're no, going to no, say... No, you're right. No, it is... Sure. No, it's a very iconic role for all these people. I don't remember the name... What was his name in uh, Caddyshack? I, I don't... Retard. I don't know. Well, well remember, though, Dan Acro... Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. Bill Murray did play Garfield in two Garfield films. Yes. But are you going to go up to Bill Murray and said, man, you played Garfield. And then he would slap me in the face. And nobody would believe you. That's the new again. The new mystique of Bill Murray is he can do anything he wants, and anybody who tells a story that has him in it, nobody will believe the story. Well, you know that's why I love Bill Murray's cameo in Zombieland, and I love that cameo contained numerous overt references to Ghostbusters. But speaking of which, let's go back to uh, Ghostbusters. So we mentioned briefly about Winston Zedmore. He wasn't originally, the character was not in the script, but they added this, it to the script as a fourth member specifically because they needed a cast member. They did not want an all-white cast. Yep. They originally wanted to have um, Eddie Murphy be a, an original Ghostbuster. He was going to be the kind of the cool guy Ghostbuster. That would have been good, huh? That would have been a, a totally different movie. I yeah, I think it'd be a completely different movie. I don't think it'd be as funny, and I I don't think I think Eddie Murphy's a little over the top, even in that age. He tends to he, overtake anything he's in. He's the star. He's Beverly Hills Cop. At the time they were going to film this, and he couldn't. He was committed to Beverly Hills Cop at the time, and I'm kind of glad. I really, looking back at Eddie Murphy's performances and other stuff that we've watched. I'm kind of glad that he wasn't in this movie. I don't think it would have been as good a movie. Now, what does Winston have that the other Ghostbusters don't? Well, I think I think I figured this out because I have done a lot of thought on that since introducing these films to my girlfriend. Um, hello, dude. Uh, th- that um, 
you know, because the Ghostbusters, apparently, you know, the Ghostbusters are getting so swamped with ghosts to bust because of this critical mass of negative psychic energy, they need help. And they put out a want ad, and Winston Zenimore is the guy that they eventually hire. And I think I figured out what he brings to the team. Of I suspect that his sort of unique skill as a Ghostbuster, aside from being the most down-to-earth of all four of them and the most sort of centered and grounded is that of all the people they probably could have got to fill the slot of the fourth Ghostbuster, Winston Zeddemore is the only person that can put up with their shit. These are three eccentric guys that can probably only reason they can work with each other is because they're very good friends. If you're outside of their clique, or I'm sorry, their clique, you, they're probably really hard to work with. But Zedemore is an e- is a grounded, easy enough going guy that he can put up with their shit and function as the fourth member of the team. I think that so, is what he brings. I also think he's very much you're definitely right, he's more the blue collar type. And in truth, you don't have to be a scientist to throw on a proton pack. Yeah, and I do just, like the he does kind of have a it's it's a job, it's a living kind of attitude, you know. As long as there's a steady paycheck in it, I will believe whatever you want. You know, another great quote. But it's like, um, what was the, what I was talking about, like, when they were supposed to be, like, plumbers, it was like a futuristic world where Ghostbusters are just, like, your local electrician. And, again, it's that idea, it kind of harkens back to that idea of a guy just going on, it's a job, it pays, I've got a machine, you just tell me where the on switch is, and boom, you got a job. Which is also the reason, I guess, behind what we'll talk about in the next episode, behind franchising Ghostbusters and where there could be a Ghostbusters in every town. Mm, yeah. It's amazing we've talked this much about Ghostbusters and haven't mentioned uh, Slimer. Oh, well, yeah. And not that he does a whole lot in this movie or even the sequel compared to the uh, cartoon series, but I had seen the sequel. Actually, and, uh, Uncle Milkshake, Uncle Milkshake. Yep. I think he can hear you. Wow. Well, hi, hi there, Slimer. How did you get on the sequel cast? I never knew uh, that's why the slime is green. God, he's a he's an ugly sucker, isn't he? Yeah. Now tell me, Slimer, have you ever uh, tried to eat a uh, turkey leg? I really loved the episode where you uh, escorted the baby ghost back to his mother. That was a real knee slapper. I think I think we should definitely we should definitely have Slimer on again. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think definitely when we talk about the cartoon because he was so. I think uh, so. Slimer overstays his uh, his welcome sometimes, but we. But we it's interesting. Him. Where the first time Slimer shows up is at the. Um, He's at the Hombro Hotel. The hotel, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful hotel. Yeah, he's uh, the first ghost the Ghostbusters really get a chance to well and truly bust. And yet he's he not one, named Slimer in this first film. I think in the credits he's just called Onion Ghost. Yeah, or the Spud or something. Wait, I like, I like Onion Ghost. Because <laughs> he's shaped like an onion? Kind of. Yeah, he's, he's like this green potato with flailing arms and a giant mouth. And he was inspired by John Belushi. I've heard that, actually. Yeah, that's kind of sad if you think about it. 
Yeah, because really in this movie, he really is just this mischievous minor low-level poltergeist that they bust, thoroughly trashing the hotel in the process. And you get to see, and you get to see how their equipment works. And you also get that imp- they lay some pipe in that scene because that's when Egon mentions, "Oh, by the way, don't cross the streams. Don't cross the proton streams." Imagine, imagine every particle in your body. Uh, expanding and then dispersing in every possible direction at the speed of light. After Ghostbusters is a movie. Don't cross the streams is one of those lines of dialogue that I can't walk into a urinal and use it without thinking of the line, don't cross the streams. What urinals have you been going to? No, but, here, no, but here's the best thing. is Matt's actually right. I've thought of so many times they wanted to say don't cross the streams. Not just in a, like, I, I wanted to, like, write that on men's room walls. <laughs> We're gonna so, put that on your on your tombstone. No, do not put that on my tombstone. Um, I would really prefer the flowers are still on the table. Okay. Um, but again, you see them lasso because that's the other cool thing about it. It's not like you're not blasting through something. You're not destroying anything but property. When it latches onto a ghost, it lassos around them, and they're yeah, like still them. like pull. It's very much like being a cowboy. You're being a spiritual cowboy. And and you have to, like, pull him and get him into a position to throw out this other ingenious little device called the trap, um, which just looks cool. It, I, I want to know where the thinking came for it. You throw it down on the floor, you, you stomp on the little uh, plunger, and boom, it opens up. Huge light like you'd see in the movie Ghost. And it just sucks in whatever you've got wrangled. I always but think I, of a vacuum cleaner myself. But, but it's then, not just that, a vacuum that, cleaner. It, you know what also, I wonder, can you trap a ghost without having it wrangled? Because I almost feel like it, maybe it's completing a circuit. Well, um, in, in the video game, uh, yes, you can trap, it, trap a ghost without wrangling it with the proton stream. Although I guess we'll save that for the official discussion, because I guess the thing is, like you, you'd have to hold the ghost still. I, th- I think you really need you need the proton streams to hold the ghost still and get it in position over the trap. You know, uh, you, you couldn't just throw the trap down and hope a ghost runs into it. Then Although in the sequel, only... that is how they do catch a ghost. They do catch a ghost yeah. by getting it to run over an open trap without wrangling it. So yes, they... it is canon in the films. As far as the video games. Um... In the mid-80s, there was a, a, a computer game like for the Apple uh, based on the movie Ghostbusters where you traveled around New York City catching ghosts and you had to conserve your budget to buy the right equipment. It, oh, yes, I played that. Yeah, it, it was not a very good game, but it was on Nintendo, uh, all these old computers this is the and original Sega. systems. Hmm. Yeah, Sega Master System might have even been on Genesis. But, um, so we've mentioned a lot about the characters and Slimer in Ghostbusters. What do you think about Sigourney Weaver as the uh, love interest for Bill Murray? Well, she's not a love interest. Bill Murray thinks that she's a love sure. interest. No, I guess that's more in the second film. It's it's an infatuation. It's, it's Bill Murray wanting to be with this really cute girl because it's probably the first person, it's probably the prettiest person so far they've come in as a client who actually lets him with all of his swarminess, into her apartment. And he thinks that by using his career, like he did with students and with teachers or whatever, he thinks by using this career, it'll get him into other people's pants. 
And and it's very much like that, I think, with this character. He doesn't stalk her, but he does show up at her place of work. And well, yeah, I guess we ought to, ought to explain. She, she's a cellist in the symphony. How awesome a career is that? She's she's a professional, a classical musician. Like, that is such an amazing flourish to have in this movie. That's true. If she were just like a regular Joe, like working in an office steno pool, or, or even if you just had like an office building. No, you have her as this cellist, who I guess is also surrounded by... She must be surrounded by geniuses and beautiful artists. And then... Also, she's got a background in art, which we'll talk about in the sequel. And Sigourney Weaver, as an actress, uh, it could be just because of her look or her height, even. But she always brings a sense of class to the joint. Oh, yes, yeah. she's a sophisticated woman. And I could see her as being a, a cellist or something. You know, I, as her as a secretary, I couldn't buy necessarily. But well, that's another question. How heck did she? Why was she cast in this movie? Where, where did they, did they talk about that on the commentary? Where she came from? I have, have, you know, I just listened to bits and pieces of the commentary, so I don't recall. I mean, this was after Aliens. Yeah, but I mean, what? I mean, you see her in that as kind of like she's the take charge character in that she becomes. Um, I seem to recall they mentioned something about Sigourney Weaver wanting to distance herself from. Alien and being in such a dark uh, action or horror movie. Oh, being a comedy. She wanted to be in a comedy, yeah, to switch things up. And this movie is still kind of dark at some points. There's a sure. uh, place where, because of where her apartment is, they're like nexuses. They're places that are are that are nodes of energy. And one of her, what is it they call it? Spook, her corner apartment is Spook Central. Spook Central, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's one of the reasons that I guess she's chosen uh, to become a, I guess, I don't want to say She becomes a vessel for yes. this power. Yes, eventually, like, the, the, the negative psychic energy builds up to such a point that there are these two, like, gargoyles on the roof of the building. The gargoyles crack open and reveal inside these, like, these demonic dogs, which I believe are referred to in the canon as terror dogs. Yeah. And one of them chases Lewis Tully around in a hilarious chase sequence and attacks him and possesses him at a fancy restaurant. However, these like ghostly arms in a scene that really used to freak out my cousin Melissa, Sigourney Weaver, you know, she's finally back in her apartment. She sits down in her chair to relax, but then these hands burst out of her couch. Oh. Or, I'm sorry, burst out of her, her recliner, pin her down. And you know the closet door opens, and the terror dogs in the closet. She gets sucked in the closet, and she gets possessed. And then you know, um, then she she becomes possessed by this being and becomes the gatekeeper. And Lewis Tully, possessed by this being, by this this being by the name of Vince Clortho, becomes the key master. Which, as a kid, totally went over my head. But as I grew up and started researching. Uh, modern occultism and the works of Francis Barrett and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn realized there's all these like there's all this occult and sexual symbolism with the gatekeeper and the keymaster. Yes, which is one of the reasons that when Dana Barrett is possessed, um, Bankman is going over to like I guess on a date is going over brings flowers and everything. He opens the door and she's like radiant. Her hair's all messed up. Um, her eyes are smoky. She's wearing this uh, sarong thing, like uh, it's like diaphanous copper robe. Oh god, that robe! Um, with this like part of it hanging off her shoulder, and she asks him if he's the keymaster. 
at that, that's so I saw, at that moment, with that moment, I became a man. Oh, uh, I wanna, I wanna use those lines for a girl. Like, I want a girl to open up a door and say, "Are you the key master?" And say, "Um, no, I'm, I'm actually his friend, but he told me to wait here." Jason, if that was the moment where Thrasher became a man, is there a time when it doesn't have to be in Ghostbusters, but is there a time when you watched a movie as a child and sort of realized, "Oh, this lady is something else." That's oh, put God. really poorly, but... No, 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 I understand what you're saying. Or well, howdy, she's a hot You know what? It would, I know it had to be when I was very young, but I cannot point out a let, single... Let me say mine. Maybe this will. Jo- this might jog your mind. I don't memory, think people see, but that can't be it. That seems... There's something something before that. Maybe it was the Childlike Empress when I was a kid. Ew. I don't know. No, when I was a kid. Ew. <laughs> okay, okay, let me, take, let me take that back. Edit that out. Okay. Um, I really don't know. I really can't pinpoint a woman. Well, Uncle Milkshake, what's yours? Mine is, um, this wasn't a real life, this was an animated woman. As a child in the theater, I saw, God damn it, Kitty, get off the fucking computer. That's was a great cool? movie. Yeah, that movie. I love God damn it, Was Kitty, it Cool World fucking... with Hollywood? No, it was Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Jessica Rabbit. You know what? Mm-hmm. Shit, it actually might be the same. on a big screen was just so... I don't just 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 the breast and the shininess of the dress. Uh, of the breast. That's actually that's actually weird because that's kind of I think that actually might be the same for me. Either that or heavy metal. There oh, is no okay. screen big enough for that action. Yeah. <laughs> but again, uh, Sigourney Weaver is beautiful. She's tall. I think she's such an amazing actress that she also gives. I guess a lot of credence because she plays a character that doesn't believe in any of this, but stuff is happening to her. She's not a crazy. She's not like silly or goofy about it. She's seriously terrified. If she's not a comedy character, that character could be lifted straight from a, from a sophisticated horror movie, and you'd never know the difference. Which is why it works. And in addition, the humor that her character has plays very well with Bill Murray's humor because both characters have a very uh, subtle style of humor, mm. very understated. I don't know if I'd call it subtle, but they play off each other well. Her her absolute seriousness and conviction plays off very well with with Peter Venkman's kind of schmoozy sleaziness. I think that's the, that's the right word, schmoozy. He has a really good way of delivering lines. And yeah, the lines are funny, but they can be delivered seriously. But just the way he delivers some of them, some of the lines is just it feels so real for that character. It makes me believe this movie. It's it's just one of the factors in this that I think was perfect for having him on set. I was checking over some reviews of this movie Ghostbusters at the time it came out, and uh, Newsweek magazine's David Anson has a quote that I think sums up this movie perfectly. Everyone seems to be working towards the same goal of relaxed insanity. Mm. There's definitely a sense of relaxation and camaraderie among the uh, cast members in this movie. Like They know they're having a fun time. Am I making sense? No? Yeah, no, no. no, no. I think you are. It just seems yeah. so effortless. Yeah, they do, and they do seem to be really having a freewheeling fun time making this movie, as good as the performances are. You get this sense that everybody making this movie was enjoying making this movie. It was just a rich experience for them. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it was a chore, because I, I think you had Harold Ramis, it was his script, so he was enjoying that. Who's the director? Ivan Reitman? Yes, Ivan Reitman directed uh, Ghostbusters 1 and uh, 2. Because Reitman is a good director as well for that kind of stuff. Um, 
I'm trying to I'm trying to think of another movie that it, it feels that has the same feel feel in his um resume. Let me think about that for a little bit, but let's 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 continue. I would say Meatballs has many Ghostbuster parallels. Hmm. <laughs> the scene where Bill Murray slaps the kid on the ass as they're jogging. Ouch. <laughs> well, let's not let's not include that. That's um very weird. But then also, um, Child, not childlike Empress weird, but weird. But let's talk. Let's go back to the apartment because we see that the, that she's possessed, and even Bankman, even though he could easily have her now that she's like this horny dog creature, actually <laughs> sees the sees it like as like, oh, she won't. It's not her anymore. I guess it's not her own free will. I'm not going to do that. He is a stand-up guy. Well, of course, to enforce that, he does have to drug her. Oh, yeah. Drugs are not so that she doesn't kill him or do anything yeah, else. He gives her roofies so that they don't have sex. Yeah. Then, of course, <laughs> during, great this, during this period, um, Vince Clortho, in, this, in the guise of Tully, um, has been captured or has been arrested. And is well, taken- he, yeah, he... he- he gets arrested for ranting about the apocalypse in Central Park, and so they, you know, they can't hold him, so they bring him to the Ghostbusters, figuring, you know, they're they're into the crazy shit. They could hold him for vagrancy or whatever, but the thing is, they can't keep him in the jail. They don't want him in the jail, and Bellevue won't take him, and Bellevue will take anybody. <laughs> it's like Arizona State. Oh, but the idea <laughs> is that because at this time the Ghostbusters have done so much and become kind of famous even though they've become kind of famous they still have dana's problems to deal with they still i guess they they're more known now and even the police are willing to give them um a reference on the jobs or whatnot i guess contract out yeah but the, the coolest thing in that movie though i love it when uh, rick moranis has a colander with a bunch of wires on his head. And as he turns his head, there's a spectrographic image of the dog creature, the terror dog, in a screen, turning its head at the exact same time. Oh, so, that's so perfectly choreographed. It's like, it's so, I don't know how many times they had to shoot that, probably not that much, but it looks so real and so, oh, just, it, it really caught me as a really spectacular effect. And then, of course, um, uh, what is it? You're so kind to humans. No, what's the line? It's like you're 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 a regular humanitarian. I don't think he's human. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's so clinical. It's like something's very wrong. I have a feeling you're gonna die. And also, let's talk a little bit about Janine. She's kind of thrown in there as a secretary. Any pots? Yeah. Any pots? And she looks so frumpy. <laughs> Looks so frumpy, and she's actually a cute girl, but they really make her look unpleasant in this. And then the switch around in the next movie, but I'll talk about that in the sequel. Um, But, uh, yeah, you have these characters. You know who we haven't talked about? Which is kind of kicking my ass right now? Peck. We haven't talked about Peck, 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 Peck. Who wants to start off on that jack-off? Okay, well, we got... There's this character... Is he the... um, There's a character uh, by the name of Walter Peck. He is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he is, I'm trying to find his character listing here, and I don't know why. He's uh, EPA. Yeah, he, he, he's, a, he's uh, an officer of the EPA, and although 
I gotta say, he seems to be working outside of his jurisdiction because you know, he, he believes the equipment that Ghostbusters is using is unsafe. But more specifically, he kind of tar- he sort of targets the Ghostbusters as being part of some sort of ghost conspiracy. He claims that they are, have a machine that's releasing hallucinogenic chemicals into the atmosphere of New York so that people think they see ghosts, and then they pay the Ghostbusters to get rid of them. That's a pretty nice conspiracy theory when you think about it. That could have made a... Oh, yeah, that could be an interesting movie in and of itself. And, in fact, uh, the movie Death Trance is pretty much about that. I hope I got the, I hope I got the title right. It's, well, it's the same movie with the twins effect, people. You could also um, do a really creepy take on Ghostbusters if you had a, a member of the Ghostbusters murdering people just so well, the other Ghostbusters could harvest their ghosts. Oh, that's horrible. But, yeah. So, yeah, so he's sort of, he's sort of set up as this minor antagonist, this kind of, like, bureaucratic busybody that wants to shut the Ghostbusters down but doesn't really know or respect what they're doing. Uh, and I've heard, and, oh, and he's played by William Atherton. He's just this great asshole character, great ginger asshole. Uh, and, and, there's, and I've heard a lot of people talk about what, if anything, you know, his, his character means. And I, like, you know... I know, like, the, you know, some people have claimed that, you know, that this movie makes sort of a statement about libertarianism and that, that Walter Peck is just this, like, uh, this know-nothing government busybody trying to justify his paycheck by sticking it to this group of independent businessmen. Well, I've also known other people who think that, you know, well, this movie is, is this movie is satirizing that whole sort of 1980s notion of the of the businessman versus the regulator and deregulation. I personally don't think this movie has a real political point with the character. They the the movie just needs a really good un, unsympathetic asshole to kickstart the climax of the film and that's what Walter Peck does with this story. Right, cuz there's no real main villain exactly. There's Zool, but Zool isn't a Zool's a cosmic force. It's a, right, it's a cosmic force, but not a personification exactly until the end of the film. Uh, so he works as an antagonizing uh, character against the Ghostbusters. Now, of course, in in the Ghostbusters video game, they do go uh, into much more detail about Walter Peck, and you find out he has a secret motivation for, for what he's doing in this film, but we'll go into that in a later episode. Right, the uh, Ghostbusters video game it was out on a PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 and a Wii, and it has a lot of um, interesting ties to the first uh, Ghostbusters film in particular. So, we're going towards the climax of the film. The Ghostbusters are going towards the... Well, well what happens hotel, is that... Right? Well, well, what kickstarts the climax of the film after... This is shortly after that whole speech about maybe the dead are rising from the graves and the end of the world might be coming and we have the gatekeeper and the key master. So the gatekeeper, you know, uh, Tully escapes and the gatekeeper and the key master meet up, obviously have sex and kind of a cosmic union that, that kickstarts things. But then we have at Ghostbusters HQ, Walter Peck barges in. Uh, the Ghostbusters have this thing called the containment unit, this like this machine that they're using to contain all the ghosts they've captured so they don't get out again. Well, Walter Peck, uh, you know, with his warrant, you know, busts into the basement of their headquarters and shuts down the containment unit, and that releases every ghost the Ghostbusters have captured in this big wave of negative psychic energy, 
and that finally is what sort of what catalyzes uh, the end of the world. So Actually, apocalyptic stuff starts happening. What's really cool about that is when it okay when he opens it, it has the same light stream as the uh, capture box, as the trap, and it busts open the top of the uh, the fire station, and it's such a cool effect because you have all these little. Uh, balls of energy, which is something that people talk about when they take uh, pictures of ghosts and stuff. There are all these uh, little Corellian um, balls of light that don't appear to the normal human eye but can be captured with a camera. Um, but and then it just it bursts open. There's a huge explosion. Dana Barrett wakes up from her, her induced uh, sleep and, and just the windows bust out and there's this massive damage they find her apartment and it's like just black and shard and then the door swings open and Tully's there and the gatekeeper has found the keymaster ugh and then of course they go upstairs because by the explosion an unseen door that was somewhere along the line boarded up flings open and it's a direct route upstairs it to to the to the top floor of the apartment building, which is in fact a temple to uh, Gozer, the Gozerian. Which I actually had to redesign for a class. I, I chose to do Ghostbusters. I redesigned it, and I think I maybe made it a little more like a ziggurat from like Babylon. No, no, because it, it has a really cool look to it. But I think I did a little. Mine was a little too Egyptian, or maybe a little Babylonian. But it didn't have the the awe of the statues and all the pillars and not pillars, but the what are those things called? Uh, needles. Oh well, uh, Cleopatra obelisks. They're obelisks. And oh man, and then the terror dogs because they transform once the Ghostbuster. Oh, sorry, we should. We yeah, get well, to- we're getting ahead of ourselves because after Walter Peck releases the Ghost of the Catavius, the Ghostbusters are arrested, and while they're in, while they're being held. You know, and, and eventually talk to the mayor. That's when we find out about. Uh, that's when we find out about Ebo Shandor and the cult and this whole end of the world conspiracy. And finally, the mayor of New York's like, "Well, some craziness is going down. Who are you going to call?" And finally, uh, you know, gives the Ghostbusters their equipment back and gives them a full police escort to the apartment building to solve this problem. Which is cool because they they reproduced the um, outside of the building. Um, I have the address, and I again, I had to redesign the building. I, I, I've been by that building. It's not as tall or as cool looking. Uh, a lot of it had um, matte painting, yeah. which they they film something through a screen that has a painting, correct? Well, there's different ways to do to do mats, but essentially, yeah, you're filming a thing that's really there while you're also filming a special effect of what you want, of what static elements you want the audience to see. In this case, a more impressive version of the skyscraper. And it is impressive. Um, but the thing is, they had to reproduce the entrance way. And for a really cool special effect, because once the Ghostbusters get there, everybody's cheering for them. You've got rabbis praying, you've got Buddhist monks, you've got Catholics, everybody's yeah, there got- like, oh, end times. You've really got a united New York in that scene. I think it's very beautiful. Yeah, that also is pretty cool. Um, but as soon as they get there, the Ecto-1 is sucked into the earth. It's sucked into the pavement. It basically cracks underneath, and, and, they're, and you think they're dead. But, of course, if they were, then the movie would be over. 
and how, how great would that have an ending have been though if you just like <laughs> cut to the end right there but there's no sequel so so yeah so the ghost the ghostbusters then have to climb so they crawl out of they crawl out of the, the, the destroyed street and everybody's cheering so then they have to climb up the ghostbusters because there's like apparently no electricity uh, the Ghostbusters have to climb all the steps to get to the top floor of this building. Which, if you think about it, it's like, it was daytime when they when they got there. By the time they get upstairs, it's night. Yes. And when they get, and when they get upstairs, uh, you know, like this big temple's opening, uh, Dana and Lewis turn into the full terror dog forms, and, like, the, the temple opens, and there's that same energy vortex with that weird structure inside, and out of that structure comes Gozer the Gozerian, played by Slavica Jovan. And, and once again, I became a man. Well, that that part was supposed to be played by Paul Rubens. No. Yep. It was supposed to be, it was actually supposed to be Evo Shandor, the architect. But it wasn't really him. It was going to be the god in the form of the disciple. But instead, they just decided to go. I, I think I like it better this way with them just using the god. And sure. boy, is she is sexy. She's like it's she's just like this '80s power woman with this sh- short, spiky hair, and her body covered in, in like I guess these like bubble things with high heels built into them. Gorgeous. Kind of a Bridget Nielsen type. Yeah, oh, very. As that kind a young of hair. Bridget Nielsen, not Bridget Nielsen not today. Small. Not as tall. And then of course the questions is like. Okay, how the hell do you deal with this uh, Babylonian god that's making itself known? And it's, go get her, Ray. Yeah, <laughs> and then Ray goes up there, you know, uh, by the uh, power vested in me by the city, state, and county of New York, uh, you are hereby ordered to uh, return to your point, to leave this, this, art, this realm, return to your point of origin, or to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. That's so great. Way to go! And then, like, what's what's Peter's response? Okay. That, that's telling her, Ray. Are <laughs> you a god? With her crackling purple eyes, are you a god? Um, like, no. And then she starts like shooting with dark force lightning. They almost yeah. fall inside of the building. They crawl back on, and uh, I think my number one most quoted line in this movie, uh, Winston turns to Ray. Goes, Ray. When somebody asks you if you're a god, you say yes. That's what you should have asked Ernie Hudson in the elevator. What, what should I? What should I say if a if a god asks me if a, if someone <laughs> asks me if I'm a god? I have to say, you see all the um, lightning bolts and stuff coming out of uh, Zool at the end of this movie, and it makes me think William Shatner must have been watching that when he was writing the ending to Star Trek V: The Final Frontier. When Ooh. God is shooting laser beams at people. Ooh. Well, good, those good, movies good. Are yes. Now, so. I'm putting my foot down. I don't want to do. I don't want to do Star Trek. Well, we'll we'll deal with that later. So yeah. So it turns out. So anyway, one of the things when Lewis Tully was possessed, one of the things he talked about was that like on, at the end of every age, when Gozer appeared, the people had to choose the form of their destruction. So they. They, you know, they start shooting, they start, they put out the proton packs, they start blasting at Gozer. Gozer vanishes, and at first they thought they defeated her, but then, you know, make your choice, choose the form of your destruction. You know, they have to choose 
the form of the monstrosity that's going to lay waste to their world. Wait, wait, wait. So, I, get I get it. Whatever we think of will destroy us. So if we think of, um, oh, God, what is it? It's like it's an act. of a 40-foot tall whatever, it'll come and get us. And as long as we don't think about anything, then we can't choose. Then he can't destroy us. Yeah, of course, that's their plan. That, that's, that's Venkman's plan. Don't think of anything. <laughs> but it's too late because Ray's already thought of something. Yeah, Ray, Ray, his pure, innocent soul, thought of something so pure and innocent it could never possibly hurt us. And the state of Marshmallow Man, the cartoon mascot oh. of a marshmallow campfire marshmallow company. We, we used to roast marshmallows at Camp Winnetuck. Uh, Ray's gone bye-bye. Yeah, and then like it's, it becomes like Godzilla. You have this giant Michelin Man-looking sailor made out of made out of marshmallows comes like tearing through New York and he looks all happy and delightful and then he just starts crushing things and destroying things and, and yeah, laying waste size, to the worst man. If really if you're that size and you're in you're in New York, there's no way. You can't go anywhere without stepping on shit. I mean, yeah, but, being, but they knew that. But then also the idea is the creature is trying to destroy. So yeah, it's got this happy face. It's got a freaking bow tie and a sailor's cap on and it's crushing <laughs> a church. And Stay Puft, it's a fake brand of marshmallows done for the movie. And in the early scene in the movie in um, Sigourney Weaver's apartment, when stuff in the kitchen is going haywire, there is a uh, unopened bag of Stay Puft marshmallows. Oh, uh, yeah. It has the logo on there, but it's very brief. You'd have to look for it. That's good laying in, though. And, and that's what I love, you know, Peter's response. When, when, when the Stay Puft marshmallow crushes the church, nobody steps on a church in my town. What's really cool is I used to eat the cereal. I had the cereal. And you could get little Stay Puft marshmallows in the cereal. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. And, like, they try blasting it, and it just, like, catches it on fire, which I guess makes it even more destructive. And it gets this grotesque look up. on its face. It starts to climb up, like King Kong. And you've got, basically, then, you've got this thing you've just shot. It's on fire. It's climbing up the side of a building, catching the building on fire. Then you've got a massive updraft that's, like, behind you, you've got fire. In front of you, you've got a god with four powers that could throw you off the roof into that fire. And so what do you that's... Well, yes? What do you do? Well, remember how we said earlier they were laying some pipe when they captured Slimer, and, you know, Egon made this whole big deal about not crossing the streams? Well, Egon decides that maybe, just maybe, crossing the streams might work. If they can cross the streams... In the dimensional vortex that Gozer's created, it could reverse the polarity of the vortex and suck Gozer and the Staple of Marshmallow Man and the Terror Dogs and all that negative psychic energy out of our dimension and, and, and collapse the gateway. And, of course, the alternative is it'll destroy the universe, it'll destroy the space-time continuum, but, hell, that's already happening anyway if Gozer gets, gets her way. So they do it. They cross the streams, and lo and behold, it works. It reverses the energy. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man vanishes in this weird shockwave, and Marshmallow Goo splatters everybody in this just hilarious scene, including Walter Peck, and it's great. And, uh, and everything is returned to normal. The Ghostbusters have their victory. I liked it as a kid, thinking about all those marshmallows, just mounds of marshmallow over New York. We gotta wonder with with the negative psychic energy removed, is it just normal marshmallow goo now? Probably, I think I it's that. So. 
problem is, of course, cleaning it up and everything's going to be sticky. Maybe it causes cancer. No, no, no. why you have to go that route? Maybe uh, well, is- I, I don't want it to. If I remember, though, isn't it? It was it was a fire retardant foam. It had to be something non-toxic. It wasn't soap like- foam, maybe. Like that stuff you get at the car wash. No, that soap foam would not be that. That would be too porous. I don't think they had foam like that back in the day. They had the kind that would bubble. But I, I have a feeling it was shaving cream. Oh yeah, kind of sense. It would have to be something that you could that people would get sick off and wouldn't irritate the skin. Yeah, and, that, and that's the climax of Ghostbusters. And from there, you know, they they chip. Uh, there's, there's like the the terror dogs have been like sort of like flash fossilized, but they crumble. And Dana and Lewis are in there, and they you know they rescue. They get Dana out of there, and then you know they get Lewis out. And Egon makes this whole thing about how I I would like to take a tissue sample from your brain. Well, actually, Spectre, there's something else that's kind of important with this. If you look at this part where they think that Dana. And uh, Tully, or uh, Louis and Lewis and Dana are dead. Yes. Right now they're black and dog things, and when uh, smells like dog, it smells like it smells burnt like burnt dog. dog hair. And this is the first time that you see kind of Peter serious the whole movie. Yeah. It's kind of him like, ah, uh, he lost the chance at like true love or whatever, but. He, he really is, like, seriously mad and, I guess, depressed and sad. And I guess that kind of denotes that maybe he really did have a connection and really did have a hope for this woman. It's like mm-hmm. I just found out this girl at my work who is incredibly beautiful and is a great artist. I was going to ask her out after I was done with my tenure because uh, I'm going to be leaving my job at the end of July. If anybody's looking for a production designer... And I was going to ask her out, but I just found out that she has a boyfriend, and my heart fucking sank when my boss was talking to her and said, well, when he came home, did uh, oh, did he ravish you? And I'm like, fuck. Ah. But at the same time, it's that kind of feeling like you have a chance, but now it's gone sure. because she's dead. My, the girl that I like isn't dead, so there's still a chance. But then, of course, he goes over, and her hand starts chipping away from the inside, and she's thankfully alive. And oh, yeah. and here, hold on! Once they bring everybody down, everybody's cheering and waving, and I'm wondering if that was done in like one take and live. It looks like Probably. all those people came. I don't know if they were if they were um, extras or they if they had were, to be. came to see what the movie was. But yeah, they're like. But it looks like it's being filmed by Steadicam, and they're like waving to everybody, and everybody's like, "Yeah, Ghostbusters and stuff." But it seems more. For me, it seemed like the movie kind of broke from being a stage movie to then being kind of real, but it, you're probably right. It probably was extras. Well, that's one way to look at this movie, though, which which can explain why it's so episodic. Don't look at it as a movie. Look at it as a documentary that follows around these quirky guys with a unique business idea. True. Actually, that's actually kind of a cool way to look at it. I mean, um, are you familiar with the Charlie Rose show? Yes, it's a PBS interview show, and uh, Bill Murray was on there around the time Rushmore came out. Oh yeah, and they were asking him about his film career, and he said, "You know, other than Rushmore at that time, the best script I had done in my whole career was uh, Groundhog Day and uh, Ghostbusters." And Mm. he said, "Ghostbusters was two thirds of a perfect script until the last third; it just became a normal action movie." 
And I'm thinking, what about Ghostbusters is normal? Yeah. But, I, mean, I mean, it has kind of an action movie ending, but I think they still keep the comedy momentum going. Yeah. But yeah, it's very much about just opening up the troubles and tribulations of opening up your own business. <laughs> very cool. Um, I really, uh, I just, as as a movie, it, it, it totally works for me. I can't think... This is another movie that you can watch over and over again. And there are so many... You know what's funny? I actually think there's a lot of Bill Murray movies that you can watch over and over again. Mm. I mean, I can watch Caddyshack. I can watch Lost in Translation over and over again. I can watch Rushmore. I can watch um, uh, The Royal Tannenbaums. And I just... Everything that he's in, I don't have a problem watching over and over again. Because there's... I don't know if it's the people that he works with or the scripts that he works with or decides to work with. I can't think of a single terrible movie except for What About Bob? That's the only movie I can think of that Bill Murray's been in that's awful. What about Garfield? I haven't seen any of the Garfield movies, and I bet the first one's all right. Bill Murray is an actor that it almost seems like in whatever movie he's in or his screen persona, he almost doesn't give a shit about his line readings. (laughs) <laughs> and, and he's good at them, but he seems kind of bothered when he's acting. Is almost like he'd rather be doing something else. I don't know. I mean, I think I think part of it depends on you know, how, how, whether he, he likes the material or whether it's like a, a, a car payment, you know, part. Yeah. But I think the other thing though is he he's kind of used to having a very casual acting style. I think yeah. if you give him too much direction, uh, it interferes with the way he acts. If you just kind of let him cut loose. You may not get quite the performance you wanted, but you will get a good, believable performance. When he's had a fair amount of integrity over uh, his career, he's very picky mm-hmm. about what he does. And oh, you know, it's another great movie, Scrooged. Yep. Oh hell yeah! No sequel though. No, no sequel. Okay. Uh, yeah, I I thought Ghostbusters is a very good movie. It holds it pretty well. I think the yeah, pacing think- can be a little bit slow in the middle. Um, Ghostbusters, I think, by far, is uh, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis's uh, best work. Possibly Bill Murray's best work, too. Um, go and watch uh, Ghostbusters. You can do what I did. I went to the local uh, used DVD store and got Ghostbusters 1 and 2 on DVD in a pack together for uh, $6. Wow. So See, yeah, I got, I got the double pack, too. You can get those movies anywhere. You sure. can find Ghostbusters. You can find a T-shirt for Ghostbusters anywhere. Yeah, Target or uh, Old Navy, they have all those retro things. It's like, that's so, there's just something so recognizable about the ghost in a red no sign. It's so simple. It works perfectly. And it's very iconic. People remember this movie easily. If you show that to somebody, they instantly know what it is. International communication. Thrasher, any thoughts on uh, final thoughts on Ghostbusters? Uh, I, I, as I said, I, I adore this movie. It's just, it's, it's, it, it, the, it's just so unique. The only movie like Ghostbusters in any way is Ghostbusters Two. Like no, while other movies have tried to capture it, this, this kind of mix of reality and fantasy and science fiction, they've all failed. Ghostbusters did it right without even trying. And I think that that's, you know, they, that's one of the reasons why it works so well. They, they weren't trying. They just let the movie happen. Uh, I, I adore it. It's fun. It's quotable. Uh, 
you know, there's a wonderful Ghostbusters fandom community you can get involved with. Every convention I go to now, there's at least people three are people. are dressed up like Ghostbusters. Yeah. yeah. We, yep. we, went to, we were just at the Origins. We were just at the Origins gaming convention, and there was a group of at least seven people in full Ghostbuster costumes, but with their own names and the name badges and with their own proton packs and equipment that light up, that lit up. And, and, and they were great guys. And, you know, it's so... It's so awesome that you can you can that, that there there's now there are communities that do that. And uh, the director of Ghostbusters, Ivan Reitman, not only did he do Ghostbusters two, he did a, a film very similar to Ghostbusters in two thousand one called Evolution. Oh yes, that's not very good, frankly. But it, it's uh, fun if you want to see a really silly movie. But yeah, it's nowhere near as good as Ghostbusters. It's funny, and it has Dan Aykroyd as the mayor of Tucson. Yep. As the governor, as the governor of uh, New Mexico. So um, I thought it was the general. No, 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 no. Dan Aykroyd plays like the he plays the governor. Dan Aykroyd was the general in the uh, Sergeant Bilko movie starring oh, Steve yeah. Martin. Yeah, that, that was a car paving movie. Yes. <laughs> um. So uh, be sure to check out website www.sequelcast.com. Send us an email sequelcast at gmail.com. Check out the Twitter feed, twitter.com slash sequelcast. I want to give a shout-out to uh, Filmaholics. They're at filmaholics.net. They recently started a movie podcast. I've been talking with them on Twitter. I should have uh, one of the hosts of the show on here. I might hop on their show for an episode in the uh, future at some point. This is uh, So next uh, episode, we're going to cover Ghostbusters 2. This is uh, Uncle Milkshake... Thrasher. And Dean Yeager. Saying. Who are you going to call? Who call? Sequel cast. The sequel cast. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs>